Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Howl in the second part of our two-part episode. Howl is about the poem written by Allen Ginsberg. A two-part episode may seem like overkill for a movie about a poem that is written from transcripts, interviews, and court records, but there was so much to discuss about the beats and the beat movement, and thankfully, our good friend John Helix was there to put everything from the movie in context. Don joins us as the representative of the Allen Ginsberg Soul Crush Society. John Helix is a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Dawn, as you may know, is a political junkie. And what she really wants to plug is for you to just get your ass out and vote. Or stay in and fill out your mail-in ballot. Yeah, that's the way to go. Pour yourselves a couple of drinks and Google the judges. Yes, you vote for judges too, and take a good look at the propositions while you're at it. It may take a couple nights and a few rounds of drinks, but before you know it, your ballot will be done. And even if you don't fill out the judges and the school boards, just make sure you get your ballot in for the big ticket items. You know, like president and congressional representative. Is it work? Hell yeah, it's work. Does it matter? Hell yes, it matters. And those who tell you it doesn't have something to gain from your apathy, don't give them what they're looking for. Voting is your right. And if you don't exercise it, someone else will. And either way, you will have to live with the consequences. And that is a really impassioned and long-winded way of saying, Go vote! Previously on Biopics Mostly Suck. Howl is a lamentation. Have we embalmed Howl? I love this film so much. And I love activism that just gets my motor running. What is it I'm missing? Conviction. That's it's like yeah. that's what I hear in Ginsburg is conviction. Soul crush on Ginsburg. It's all of it, you know? Blood, shit, piss, cum, the whole thing, all you know, wrapped up into one. Which I think is a good point to jump off into the obscenity trial. No, wait. You asked me my thoughts on it. Oh, wait. Did I take your turn? No. Oh. You took your turn. Oh. I'm just simply insisting on mine. Oh. <laughs> to go back to your questions. With Howell... I don't think that it became stayed or added to the academic compendium in canon. canon. It didn't just become part of what you do as rote when you get to your freshman college classes, because something has to sit still to be set in amber. It does not sit still. It is vibrant. It is alive. And without saying it is contrarian, it is continues to be contrarian to this false social construct of the United States. When people returned from World War II, there was this idea that you have 2.5 kids, a chicken in the pot, a wife at home cooking that chicken in the pot, everyone has a home in the suburbs, and 
you live the American dream because we have defeated the Nazis. Which sort of sounds good to some people on the surface. I mean, the idea that people have food and shelter and can have a home and a family in and of itself, these are positive things. The fact that they should view, they were viewed as only appropriate in that specific context, in that specific construct is unacceptable. And Howell went against all of those ideas without saying, fuck those ideas. It simply said, these ideas. <laughs> I agree with Don that there's, these are, these are ideas. I think he's, he was always hurt and upset about the Columbia incident. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did go back to Berkeley and um, the Columbia incident, are you... Ref- he, what he wrote on the window. And, okay, because yeah, yeah. you made reference to that, but you didn't... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. So he wrote some obscenity on the window. Um, there he is again with his obscenity. That damn, those damn foul-mouthed beats, right? <laughs> Ruining the social fabric of... This is why I love them so much, because when you place them in opposition to the, to the mainstream culture of the time, they, I mean, mainstream culture looks foolish. They look stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, they look thoughtless. What else is going on in literature at this time? Seriously, aside from fucking Truman Capote. Oh, in 55? Sorry? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm saying this whole period. I mean, we're going like 48 to, let's say, until you get to, I'm trying to think of major, like bombshell books or poems. It's like Thomas Pynchon is the next one with V. I can't think of anything interesting going on in literature during this time period more interesting than on the road, naked lunch and Howell. I don't know what else I would look for. Hmm. There's not, there's no one. I mean, Heming, there's some Hemingway you could read, but I mean, Hemingway's heyday was 40, 30 years before. I don't know. So yeah, I think there's so much that contributes to the, the, the love of this, but I would say ultimately what the beats represent and this is the reason that it's hard to to live with them for a long time, is that they represent a passion that burns so strong in youth and the flame that can't be controlled. And that I that that idealism taken to extreme, extreme um, conclusions through extreme means. Uh it's hard to age with them. So that's one of the issues that comes up is when you're young, I first read Ginsburg, I think when I was like 18 or 19 and then Kerouac a little bit later, I was just enthralled and wrapped up by the energy of it. And now I'm more into the idea of it. I can't, I, I just don't think I have, I don't think my heart's beating as fast as it used to. You know, it's like, are you I, saying it's a young man's poem? I'm saying in certain respects, it's a young man's poem. Um, but I'm in other respects, I think that it is a universal poem that would last, you know, it would be, it could be read at any historical juncture at any age. Mm-hmm. Now, the ideas presented in it were very much going against the establishment. Mm-hmm. How much of that do you think played into the obscenity trial? Or do you think it was all about filthy words? No, I think a lot of it was it It went against the strident sense of conformity at the time. 
which I think goes back to why it, it's so singular. You, you look at the beats and you don't see much else. It, it marks that moment. You know, there were writers like James Baldwin who was writing in the mid fifties, but people don't see him as part of that moment. Yep. He's seen as a writer whose work is always appreciated and reinterpreted through the current lens as it is now, especially, but there was something about the beats that it was, it was simply this. And I wonder looking at through today's lens, was it was part of it that it was so offensive because these were white men who had the opportunity of privilege if they only conformed so why would they do this? This goes back to this idea of um, I was at one of the protests yesterday and someone objected, a, a white person who was on the other side of things was objecting to my very presence there saying, you're not even black to me, as though you have the opportunity for maintaining this privilege. Why wouldn't you do that? And I wonder if that was part of the implied offense that they were making because in that era would it be quote unquote of course baldwin wrote against that but why would these guys right. if they just cut their fucking hair and marry a woman they'll be fine what are they bitching about mm-hmm. yeah and and also you know kerouac and ginsburg but kerouac especially if we want to talk about you know the beast treatment of women is is about as atrocious as you can find but the really interesting thing is their absolute embracing and celebration of black culture in the United States. And it was Kerouac and Ginsburg who were in the jazz clubs listening to mm-hmm. Charlie Parker. Listen, I mean, they were there and Kerouac put a lot of them in his books and was like promoting their music. And I mean, it was, I still think that they are thinking ahead of where we are now. I still think that their vision of the universe and or the world of our world is so expansive that you can only look at a couple of other examples. Walt Whitman is one of them. Um, I think Bruce Springsteen is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Bob Dylan is another one. I'm just going to go like 20th century. We can go, you know, literary history, but it's just – it's just one of so, so few examples, you know, I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, but that's okay. You can edit it out. Where was I going with that? I, it was examples of, I was listing. Well, the question I had asked was, do you think the obscenity was all about dirty words? Oh, the obscenity trial. That's what I was going to say. I'm trying to so, get into that portion of the film. Yeah, I know, and I'm blocking you at every step. Um, <laughs> actually, Don did the better job of that. <laughs> well, I'll get into that too because I, I, I love the I love the trial because you provide a great transition to it, which Don blew out of the water. Uh. <laughs> so, okay, the obscenity. Um, I think the obscenity is the tip of the iceberg. I think what the the larger fear was this would set off a cultural change in the United States. And I think that at its core, I never think that governments are really interested in sex or Mm -hmm. words. I don't ever think that's the case at the top. I think they're interested in control Mm -hmm. and how they can use those to control people. So I, I think to the public, sure the obscenity was shocking, but I, 
<laughs> I don't think the obscenity <laughs> was a real big deal to, you know, to well, the government in and of itself. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the obscenity trial because in the movie, that's another way the poem is being explored mm-hmm. is through the transcripts of the obscenity trial. And the background to that is on March 25th, 1957, U.S. custom officials seized 520 copies of Howl and other poems as their shipping crates arrived from City Light's London-based printer on the grounds that the book was obscene. One of the inspectors told reporters, quote, you wouldn't want your children to come across it. <laughs> yeah, well, just like you'd want your, your children to come across, uh, you know. The Bible? G.I. Joe in the fucking mid-50s. Yeah, you know. After two months, the U.S. Attorney's <laughs> Office declined to prosecute, and the copies were released from customs. Five days after that decision, on June 3rd, two undercover cops with the San Francisco Police Department's Juvenile Bureau. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best part. That's the yeah. best part. Because you wouldn't want your children to come across Of course it. not. Of course no. not. Went into City Lights Bookstore, bought a copy of Hal, and then arrested uh, Shigayoshi known as Shig Marau, for selling obscene material. Which is interesting to note that Ferling Getty was technically arrested, but he turned himself in. He was in Big Sur at the time all of this went down. The only person to be arrested, and when we say arrested, we have to put that kind of in quotation marks because Shig says they never even put handcuffs on him. They just put him in the patrol car and stuck him in the drunk tank for a couple hours. And I think it was like three blocks to the police station. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where he was offered a hot dog, which he declined. And then when Shig writes about this, the, the most vivid thing he puts in there is also um, kind of obscene because Shig says when he was released on bail, which was paid by the ACLU, American Civil mm-hmm. Liberties Union, He's walking out of the station, and he overhears two officers talking. You know the story? And one of the officers says that the judge must have gotten laid last night because he's releasing all these guys. Mm -hmm. And the other officer replies, no, he must have jacked off. His wife is dead. Yeah. (laughs) And again, that's there it is, staring you squarely in the face. You can't print it, but the cops can say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the children aren't going to come across it when the cops are talking about it. The children aren't going to come across it hanging out at City Lights either. Like, maybe five, what was the population in 1955? I don't know. Um, but I'm trying to think of just the ratio yeah. there of uh-huh. 522. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and since we mentioned Shig, I want to take a break from the obscenity for a moment because Shig is in a way a central figure but there's also very little known about him. So I wanted to give Shig some due here. Now, Shig was a clerk early on in City Lights history, and he was promoted after a couple years to being the manager of City Lights Bookstore. And what City Lights is known for in how it approached selling books and for the atmosphere that's there, for it being a community spot for artists to get together and communicate and debate topics of the day, that is largely due to Shig. Paperback only. First paperback only bookstore in the United States. And Shig is the person who set that tone for the store. 
Once Hal was released, Ferlinghetti was making plenty of money from the publishing side and paid very little attention to what was happening at City Lights Bookstore. And it was also well known that Shig really didn't care much about finances or business or worrying about books walking out of the store. In fact, when homeless people put books under their jacket and walked out, if another customer brought it to Shig's attention, Shig would just say, it's okay, he's family. Nice. Yes. So what was his focus as manager if it wasn't <laughs> any of those things which are typically the focus of a store manager of any type of store? His focus was to create a community for artists and to be part of that community. Right on. His if only- all the poems are published in heaven, then yeah. there we go. And he he just wanted a quiet life of reading poetry because he didn't write too much. He just wanted a quiet life of reading poetry and being in that environment and really was not the type of person who wanted to be in the middle of an obscenity trial. And to try to explain to his parents? There was also a communication problem because... He he wasn't fluent in Japanese mm-hmm. speaking and, oh man, he could not explain. They were just, I think his parents were happy just that he wasn't going to jail. Yes. <laughs> But he couldn't, he, he actually went and he couldn't, he could not transmit that information of why they just knew it was wow. obs- obscenity. But that has to be interesting to try to wrap your head around. Your son was arrested for selling words mm-hmm. and trying to convey that from Shig's perspective was difficult as well. Shig, in 1975, he had the first of several strokes which he had later in life. And this was all likely due to his six can a day Coca-Cola habit. He was no, he could always be seen with a can of Coca-Cola in his hand, which also led to his diabetes. Mm. And while Shig was out recovering from his stroke, this is when Ferlinghetti realized what was happening with the finances at city lights. And when Ferlinghetti says it, he says, we were just about out of business and I had no idea. He brought in another guy to get the finances in order. And what he wanted was he wanted that guy to manage the finances. And he wanted to bring Shig back to be the manager of personnel. Mm -hmm. He wanted him to hire people. He wanted him to continue to set the tone for the store. And Shig felt this was a figurehead position. And he declined. That's a shame. Because if he was setting the tone, that's so vital. That's not a figurehead at all. And he and Ferlinghetti never talked to each other after that. Mm. Their common friends had to kind of negotiate this as well. Because it almost became a which camp are you in? Are you with Team? Like a divorce. Like a divorce. Are you with Team Ferlinghetti? Are you with Team Morale? And Ginsburg was still friends with both. In fact, Ginsburg would stay with Shig whenever he was in San Francisco. And they were friendly, and Ginsburg was still friendly with Ferlinghetti as well. Uh, you had mentioned your man crush on Kerouac. Oh, yeah. Shig could not stand Kerouac <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Hey, join the millions. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you to what degree. There was an entire summer in the early 70s where On the Road was not available at City Lights Bookstore. <laughs> Even, wonderful. even yeah. though customers kept asking for it. That's awesome. And to this day, it is 
a shrine to Howl. <laughs> Go upstairs. So here's the thing. Why do we not hear much about Shig? And the reason why is because he never sought the publicity. When authors and, and interviewers came forward to write about Ginsburg and to write about Kerouac and to write about Ferlinghetti, of course they knew of Shig and they reached out to Shig and Shig would decline interviews. He did not want to ride the coattails of these authors. He didn't want his, and he always felt that as a Japanese person, Japanese keep their private lives private. And that's what he asserted. And that's what he asserted. And many of the interviewers respected him for it, became friends of his, even if they didn't end up putting the discussions into the final pieces. But they respected the fact that he just wanted to live a quiet life and move on. It's a noble aspiration. Mm -hmm. It is. Life of quiet study and thought. So here's this figure who's central to the obscenity trial, who's the only person to actually be arrested Mm -hmm. for the selling of Hal, and, and not much is known about him because that's the way he wanted it. Now, when Shig was in the courtroom for the short time he was there, he wore this blue summer suit with a vest, which he wore as a response to the ridiculousness of what he saw as the obscenity trial, because no one in San Francisco would wear a suit like that, according to him. (laughs) (laughs) He was cosplaying? He was cosplaying. (laughs) And, And he would sit there at the defense table, resting his... His hand on one finger. Oh, what finger would that be? Mm, that was the uh, middle digit as the trial was starting. And one of the attorneys finally told him, hey, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings us. <laughs> and stop sh- it. This is a respectable proceeding. Right. <laughs> This isn't going to help anything in an obscenity <laughs> trial for you to be flashing the middle finger like that. Yeah. yeah. But the obscenity case itself came before a municipal court judge, Clayton W. Horn. Great name. <laughs> yeah. Clayton W. Horn. Sounds like uh, almost a Southern. Should be a Southern judge. Yeah. Clayton W. Horn. Yeah, yeah. got a little bit of that like, like hayseed thing going on though too. Uh-huh. You know, like, hey, I just stumbled uh-huh. into town and I'm going to do this trial. What, what are we talking about? Pornography? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Horn was no civil libertarian. <laughs> One of the city's four police magistrates and a regular Sunday school teacher oh. he was. And he had recently caused a stir by sentencing five women guilty of shoplifting to go see the movie The Ten Commandments and write reports on the moral lessons afterwards. Hence the culture of the time. Yes. Now, Don, you have some background on how things came to trial and what Ferlinghetti put in place for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Because... This, this wasn't an accident that it was brought to trial. No, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti really wanted to ensure the expansion of protections under the First Amendment, that works that are creative are not going to be subject to obscenity laws, pornography laws, arbitrarily, and for the sake of conforming to all the things that we've talked about, this certain specific sense of what American literature is and what is proper, what is appropriate for any person to read. So he had Howell shipped internationally and made sure that it was known so that the, uh, 
law enforcement arm of the Postal Service could capture that box of shipment from London so that there would be that potential to have a legal challenge to it. He had worked heavily with local attorneys, including the ACLU, and had a plan in place with the understanding that at some point, either through the shipment of or the sale of Howell, that there would be a trial based on the obscenity laws and they would be able to address protections of creative writing under the First Amendment. So there was a deep foundational plan in place for addressing this. This wasn't, they walked in, it was a sting, and everyone was taken by surprise. Ferlinghetti and people working with him were well prepared for this to happen. And, I mean, this is a strategy used in in civil rights challenges. We've heard about this in other contexts. And, and he embraced this strategy, and they had all the tactics in place, and everything was there. They were ready when shit got arrested for what happened next. And the ACLU lawyers, if I remember, were gung-ho. They, they were, were gung-ho. I mean, just well, the fact that they got him out of, out of the jail oh, in yeah. two hours. Oh, yeah. They were oh, ready. Yeah. I mean, no, they, they were had, prepared, yeah. but I, 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 if I remember from the – I remember one of the lawyers was had a particular kind of like fer, like fervid – uh, approach to the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, they were, I mean, they were believers, right? They were I mean, believers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for, yeah. Yeah. You got to be to be an ACLU lawyer, but yeah. these guys, especially they, you know, they, they have people with specific, very specific specialties and man, those guys come out teeth bared, claws out and fully armed with every tidbit of information, facts, law code that they need they were they were good to go and as ready as they may have been it wasn't a big fight that was being brought to them by the prosecution because the prosecuting (laughs) attorney was ralph mcintosh and the only thing he was bringing forward was there were dirty words And, and his approach was to have the dirty words repeated in court which i've always found this to be interesting from people who are fighting obscenity it's like in the 80s there was a group called the parents television council <laughs> mm-hmm. who, and, and parents music resources uh, pmrc uh, uh, and the parents television council would just oh no it was in the 90s because this is the time of nypd blue Okay, and they were losing their oh, shit over oh, na- think, okay. Dennis Franz naked yeah, body. They were losing. He was flabby because remember networks were competing with cable channels, so there was a broadening of what could be presented, okay. and those limits were being pushed in some ways. And the parent and the parents' television council would complain about deaths or drug use or nakedness or sex that was shown on TV. But much like Macintosh's approach, they would have a page on their website showing clips of what they're complaining about. (laughs) And I always thought, this is a strange approach, because if you don't like it, why are you presenting it Oh, but you're making the assumption that they actually really do not like it. Mm -hmm. They love it. So Mm -hmm. I, I I decided to try an experiment. I went on their contact page, and I, uh, I 
<laughs> I remember this. I, I let them know that uh, my parents don't let me watch these things, but kids at school keep talking about them. And I'm so happy that you have this available on your website so I can see what my friends are talking about. Signed, Billy, age 10. The next week I went back and took a look at the website. It was gone. Ah! I don't know if I had an impact. You crashed it. You broke. You broke the parents' council. It was gone. You have just destroyed the familial fabric that has held this country together. And that page was just, you couldn't see the samples of what they were complaining about. They would only have them described in paragraph form now. But that was the approach on obscenity, which is, we think this is obscene. Let's present what's obscene. And it came to a ridiculous way because the defense attorney was J.W. Ehrlich. Do you know anything about this guy? Not much. He was great. He was He's the guy Perry Mason was based on. Oh, okay. He started law in the 20s and died in 71, I think. But he was a flamboyant character. And apparently the court trial, the gallery, was much more raucous than what the movie yeah. Hal shows. Hal shows it as a very staid kind of dour environment whereas it was anything but it seems the only thing missing at the trial was passing around the jugs of wine <laughs> from what i've read reading number two huh <laughs> yeah. and uh, and jw ehrlich he was known for representing celebrities he got billy holiday off on heroin charges wow in San Francisco, she she was with her boyfriend at the time. They were staying at the Mark Twain Hotel. And in the trial, Ehrlich just had to point out that the chief of police and Billie Holiday's boyfriend had been in touch with each other over the past year. And she got off on the charges. So he had a long line of celebrities who he represented. And as one obituary put it, a long line of women who were accused of killing their husbands. <laughs> Rock on. Ehrlich. Yeah, that's that's way ahead. Ehrlich had one case where a woman and a guy were in a hotel room. Just the two of them. He wound up with three bullets in his back. They had the case. He presented the facts. The jury came back with a not guilty verdict in 13 minutes. <laughs> 13 minutes. That's impressive. In another case, he must have broke some record on this next case because the jury left the courtroom and returned with a verdict in four minutes. That That's just walking down the hallway and back. I mean... All right. We all agree from the beginning that we... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was enough time to write not guilty on the slip of paper to, to hand to the judge. They didn't even get the seats in the jury room warm. That, that's that's four, great. That's ridiculous. So this is the guy who was there to represent Ferlinghetti. And at one point, Macintosh is bringing forward the fucked in the ass portion mm-hmm. of the poem. And except he says F dash 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 in the A dash 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 dash. Oh, <laughs> such delicate sensibilities. <laughs> to which J.W. Ehrlich says, um, uh, I'm sorry, that's uh, speculative. <laughs> <laughs> and That's the judge and the judge sustained it. The Damn. judge sustained the objection because technically it is. Yep. If you're just going to put dashes in there, what else could it be? Yep. It could be other things. Which speaking of that portion of the poem, do you know that a case involving how came up as recently as last year? No. In Steamboat Springs, Colorado, a high school English teacher 
introduced his class to the poem How. Right on. It was a censored version for high schoolers, so of course it had things deleted. Yeah. They learned all about how to blow shit up, but they you know, they, they yeah. can't read about assholes. Yeah. But the teacher had students fill in the words. Okay. And the article <laughs> Mad Libs? <laughs> Mad Libs, yes. <laughs> So C, the beat edition. C dash dash T. What do you think that word would be? Cart? Mm, cart. Mm. Mm. Probably not the wisest thing on the teacher's part because he didn't even notify the parents that they were going to be reviewing this poem. It, it's a high school literature class. It's a high school literature class, but it came about because a religious parent was upset that his daughter had to read these things. And of what religion might that parent be? Christian religion. And of mm. what denomination and of what type? You know, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm not I... sure on that one. But the Liberty Foundation represented... Oh, evangelical. Ah, there we go. There you go. I would never have guessed that. Not in a million years would I have ever have guessed... I'm that shocked. an evangelical Christian would be opposed to how. I, I just can't even imagine that. Even though Ginsburg knew the Bible... Better than 99 fucking percent of them. Sorry. Okay. I'll stop. And the school had to apologize and... For what? For not including the parents in the decision to present this material and provide sensitivity training. What? Oh, fuck that that shit. What does that mean? Uh, that means they need to be sensitive to religious perspectives. I know, but what does sensitivity training involve? I, I okay. have no idea. I, that I sounds like know. re-education or indoctrination to me. Yeah, but, that, yeah. That, that's what that sounds like to me. That's such bullshit. He's a literature teacher. He should be teaching literature, and he should have the freedom to select what is supposed to be on his syllabus. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think what we need to note here is regarding Judge Horn. In his judgment, he did what a judge should do. Hmm. He took two weeks to review the poem. He took a look at both sides with great consideration. And he made the observation that if these obscene words were substituted, the work would lose its meaning. Judge Horn ruled that if this book were banned or deemed obscene, that it would, quote, destroy our freedoms of speech and press. And therefore, he deemed it to not be obscene and charges were dropped. That's fantastic. And one of the things I thought was really interesting that they included in the movie were the portions of the transcripts where they were talking about, well, I don't understand it. Mm, and they yeah. were getting those quotes from literature yeah. professors but that as was the, well. That was the core argument from the prosecution was it can't be understood, so therefore it must be obscene. But that's part of the joy of works like this. I mean, even the three of us have very different experiences with Howell and with how we interpret it and how we experience it. That doesn't devalue it. To me, that's what makes poetry one of the more beautiful types of art and expressions of creativity. You know, just me having a personal preference over it because of the the insistence that there's something on the other side of all of this despair or that we're going to insist that we try to f- make sure there is something at the other end of this despair. And John's preference for Kerouac in that in that more dour, dark... Dead at 47. <laughs> dead at 47 feel to it. Y- you're not finding a connection with it the way we do. 
but they're all still experiences. And that's, that was one of the things they talked about that was so beautiful about it. And I think that gets forgotten. People feel left out by a work if they don't understand it. But to me, that just gives you the chance to walk through it and explore it and surround yourself in it and, and consider it. But understand that the thing, the whole notion of meaning in any work is, I think, especially when you get to poetry, is it's too nebulous to even nail down. And that's the idea that a poem is supposed to have meaning is a presumption. And it's it's not it's not indicative of anything qualitatively about the poem in the same Mm -hmm. way that I would say I'm so drawn to poetry because I'm so drawn to music is that, you know, the, the poetry creates impressions rather than Mm. literal like if you ask me what um okay so let's just take semi-charmed life okay third eye blind right like what does that song (laughs) literally mean okay i I can get some it's a collection of images right there's not a story there though i don't know what that song means it's a series of impressions and visions or if you want to use a ginsburg term of stephen jenkins existence at that Mm -hmm. time so that that's i always have a problem when people are trained to look for meaning it's like you're you're going fishing or something and it's like that's not the that's not that's not a good way to read don't go in with a presumed objective poetry i'm talking like let's say i get the new record right and i i go okay well, I'm going to seriously analyze the lyrics of this record and I'm going to look at its sonic components and I'm going to put together all the dynamics of the music and by the end of the record, I'm going to have a nice, neat interpretation of what this means. To me, that would just blow the whole record listening experience. Yeah, I don't think that's what it is for me. Really? Because one of my favorite poems is Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Beware the Jabberwock, my son, the claws that... Find the teeth that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird and the frumnius bandersnatch. Yeah, but are you a fan of poetry in general? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Howl just doesn't hit me anywhere, no matter how many times I hear it. Mm. And I don't know. The the beats have never caught me either. So, no, I don't You're think... You're probably I'm... just not a... I'm stuttering here. Degenerate. You're probably just not like... You probably live an upstanding life. That's probably what it is. <sighs> that may be part of it. Yeah. yeah Nobility has its, you know, costs. I guess so. All right. So question for you. We've had Hal. Is there still room to have a Allen Ginsberg biopic? Oh, yeah. Is there more to explore there on Ginsberg's life? What the fuck? Yeah. Absolutely. Hell, yeah. Oh, and Hal, I would say, is not even his best poem. Kaddish, I think it is. Really? Masterpiece. That just chills ran down me. It's about his mother um, as she is institutionalized and then passes away. It's one of the saddest poems I've ever read in my life. I'll have to to check that one out. The one to check out, though, is America. Mm -hmm. uh, That's the one to look at for for this day and age because he's responding to Langston Hughes. He's responding to Walt Whitman, the notion of what America is. And that, that, I mean, that was Ginsburg's subject for... I think his whole career and his whole life is like what there's the, there's the formality of, and the codification of law. How do those freedoms play themselves out? And what are the boundaries of those freedoms? I I think until the end, 
who's pushing those doors, constantly carving space out for young writers, young poets, young artists, super generous. Um, you could There could be a biopic on his, a retrospective of his entire body of work. There could be a biopic about his relationship with his father, which is really complicated mm-hmm. and really interesting. Um, absolutely. I think they... The same crew better be involved in that biopic. <laughs> As who did that, that. Yeah, absolutely. That, because- that would be my feeling too. Because I think there could be a really deep exploration with his relationships with the various mental health systems too. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, he, he recognized his depression. He fought against the idea that his homosexuality was a diagnosis. But he, you know, he did embrace certain experiences while he was institutionalized. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talked about what it was like to have to sign the papers for his mother's lobotomy, Mm -hmm. which is just barbaric and was considered a reasonable treatment uh, at the time. I would say that if I could, if if I look into the, you know, looking glass here, give it 50 more years, give it 100 more years, Ginsburg will be uh, the American bard. I mean, I think Whitman definitely got the ball rolling in, a, in the biggest way possible along with Emily Dickinson but Ginsburg just his influence on American culture cannot be overstated he and the other thing is he gravitated toward all of these interesting offshoots of the beat movement the merry pranksters and Ken Kesey the Beatles come to town he wants to be a part of that he's so involved in all of these phenomena that pop up and disrupt the culture and shift it in some way He's always there. And uh, yeah, I think it would be a fabulous, long, very long biopic. Interesting, because until you said that, I never thought of the Beatles having a connection to the beat movement. That's where they... But now that you talk about that, it makes sense. Oh, yeah. And Kerouac writes about this extensively. Kerouac hated the Beatles. Um, He says, says, uh, you will note the change in the spelling of their name. He wrote that in a letter to, I think, Ginsburg or Cassidy. Because Kerouac came up with the whole notion of beat. And it's an interesting idea to think about. It's not just beat as in tired. It's beat, which comes from the Bible of Beatitudes and Mm -hmm. blessed. It has the beatnik, sputnik connotation to it. Um, And then it also has a musical connotation to it of beat with the influence of jazz. So I just, I, I think that, you know, Ginsburg is one of those guys. To me, Kerouac has kind of been studied and and totalized in a way. I, but when you get into the poets, the poets never die. And that's the line I love from Gregory Corso. He says, here's the thing. You know, you can have a Jim Morrison. You can have a Bob Dylan. He goes, but look, this is what the poets know. The poets know this. They're with the kings and the emperors. The other ones, the musicians, they're the minstrels. Mm. And mm-hmm. no wise king wants to l- sit and listen to refrain. No wise king wants to sit and listen to a chorus. You want something that is expansive and beyond your capacity of thinking and something that pushes you. Um, and this ties back into platonic notions of philosopher kings ruling and all of that but it's a really good line by corso mm-hmm. why do you want to be a poet and it's a dismissal of it's a really fine line between or it's not a fine line a sharp line between pop culture ephemera and things that will stay 
And I would say Ginsburg is squarely in that category. The Doors, I don't know if they're going to be around in 100 years. Right. I don't know. if, And people probably still will listen to Dylan in 100 years. Ginsburg will be around in 100 years. Mm-hmm. And I do think to a certain extent, whether intended or not, Kerouac was put in amber because he has been so mm-hmm. teased apart and so identified with that movement. And honestly, he's a little precious about the whole thing. He yeah. was a bit precious about it. Yeah. And because I and I think in part because he was a bit precious about it, and even if it was to protect the integrity of what they were working on or, oh, or yeah. whatever his heart his argument was, once you engage in the system that is analyzing you, you allow yourself to become yeah. put in amber. And that's what everyone. And Ginsburg didn't do that. No, he, he engaged never... with the world. Yep. Yep. And that and that's and that's a, it's a good point because Kerouac largely he stopped writing after On the Road came out um, fifty seven. He was done with the whole. He was he was done with everything by like fifty eight, fifty nine. He was he renounced. He didn't renounce the beat movement, but he 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 would go on William. F. Have you seen those interviews with Kerouac with no. William F. Buckley? Mm-mm, no, <laughs> they're the best. So <laughs> so Kerouac took a bizarre conservative turn in his later years, like a hyper conservative. It was just weird. Um, but he would go on Buckley's show, and he—it he, wasn't conservative in the sense that Buckley was conservative, like mm. crypto Nazi, you know what I mean? But he would show up like after three days of—I mean, Kerouac was a bad alcoholic, right? And he would fall asleep on Buckley's show. He was so uninterested in what in the conversation because the conversation was so low. Like Buckley would ask him these questions that were just—it was like fly swatting. And Kerouac was. I mean, he's drunk out of he's drunk out of his mind. He sits back and he's nodding off. Ginsburg was at those tapings, and you can see Kerouac, and he's sitting there, and he starts talking about Ginsburg, and he goes, "Ah, Ginsburg," and you look, and then the shot cuts to Ginsburg in the audience, and Ginsburg has this look of intense concern for Kerouac on his mm. face, and that to me epitomizes the man. Here's someone who's being abused by one of his best friends. And he's looking at the friend with utter concern. Mm. Can't trap that guy in Amber. No way. Wow. He's dynamic. He's a force. He's a poet. It's a true poet. Mm. Through and through. All right. Well, good discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Yep. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere, but not Spreaker. We don't do Spreaker. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash how. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For how, I have a performance of Footnote to How, performed by Patti Smith, Philip Glass, and Tibetan monks. I also have the entire uncut animation from the Howl movie. Holy, 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 holy. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Howl. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can find his music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. 
and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.